Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. This is Mike Siegel. I am your host, and this is part two of my discussion with Ted Russell Camp. And if you want to write me, Mike at TravelTalesPodcast.com. Our website is TravelTalesPodcast.com. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, it's TravelTalesPod at Twitter. This episode may seem like it's a little uh, music-heavy, but that's okay, because uh, I'm interested in music, and uh, I'm really always fascinated by musicians and people who write original music. Um, I don't know how they do it, and it uh, always fascinates me. And, and for so many of us who travel solo, I always wonder what it's like traveling around in a band. So I ask him about that and many other things, and you're going to hear a little bit of Ted's music also. So that's it. Enjoy part two of my talk with Ted Russell Camp. She was the prettiest thing in Reno I said, it don't matter if we win or lose Cause as long as I'm walking away with you You and me are gonna be the house rulers at the old casino So what was the craziest mode of transportation Or worst mode of transportation you ever took? Oh, this is not a mode of transportation This is a, this is a uh, the last time I was in, in Sweden We were gonna play a big festival and it was kind of out. Kind of, the way they described it to me, it was going to be like a, a Disneyland type of festival, but with country music for the weekend. And uh, so about two weeks before I get there, they're like, by the way, we're not going to get hotel rooms. We're going to have these train cars or something. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, that's kind of weird. This is going to be like, uh, okay, maybe it's like an RV or something, and we'll just be kind of there. Who, wh- whatever. Okay, yeah, that's fine. Who cares? <laughs> I don't need to, you know. Let's, let's not make a big deal out of it. So I get there, and where we get to stay is on a train car from the old Orient Express. Mm. And I, didn't, I, did, I never knew this, but that was London to Istanbul. Yeah. And each country had their own cars, so that if you were from whatever country you were from, you could stay on train cars where they spoke your language and oh. had food that you were used to. So there would be three German cars, three French cars, three Danish cars, three Italian cars you know, three Greek cars. And so these were the Swedish train cars from the Orient Express. And how old are we talking? And here? these are... I, did you ever see the movie Murder sure. on the Orient Express? Sure, It was that. <laughs> so it was the 30s? It's, yeah, it's know, old. This is 20s, an old... The 30s? So you're staying in a train car. So we're staying in the train car, and there's electricity. And you go in, there's like little tiny train car rooms, but there are three bunks on top of each other. And there are ladders. And the, the, the coolest and most fascinating thing about it was, it was like... This was luxury accommodations in 1929, or whenever it was. I, right, I don't right. know the year. Uh, whereas now, it'd be like, wow, that's kind of funky. But like, the, <laughs> out of every, every little bit of space is organized and used efficiently. Mm-hmm. Like right next to the bathroom sink, 
there will be this little thing that folds out, and that's where your toilet your bag can sit for when you're using the bathroom. And there's this little <laughs> ladder that doubles as your coat rack when you're not climbing up and down it. And this, this, it, was, it was really – I have some pictures. When we get off, I'll show them to you. This is really cool. Wow. So this is parked on, uh, on tracks, or they, they've removed them off the tracks and they're they – on... they, had, they had the track, and it was, it was like uh, – you know, it was it was like a, an, a theme park, but there was a zoo section. Oh, okay. There was a water park section. There, it was a national park, so there was like ten or fifteen miles of just woods. And this was like central Sweden in the middle of the summer, so, so it's like, like the redwood forests. Yeah, kind of. It was amazing. And it doesn't get dark um, till like one in the one yeah, in the morning. It, it gets dark from one until four. <laughs> yeah, and then it gets light again. Um, well, that messes with as a night person. Uh, that yeah, it messes, messes with, with yeah. the sleep, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, it feels it feels like it's dusk. Yeah, and it's actually eleven o'clock. <laughs> And you're supposed to get on stage. You're like, it's, but it's still dusk. It still feels like it's 6.30. I remember I did a show in Alaska once, and it was August. And we did the show, and we got off at about between 9.30 and 10. And then we went and played nine holes of golf at 10 o'clock at night That's awesome. for an hour and a half. Because it was light enough. Like you said, it was like dusk. Right. We said, well, we'll just keep playing. Yeah. I've never done <laughs> played nine holes after a show. That's hilarious. It was so weird. Yeah, that, that mess, it messes with your, like... Sleep pattern, though. You got to literally black out the windows so you can sleep. Yeah. And just so your you're just normal pattern, your rhythm, doesn't get off. Yeah, totally. There, were, there was one great horrible travel story. I, had, I, I was in my old touring band from Seattle I mentioned before. We were driving from Portland to Boise. No, to Sun Valley, Idaho. Oh. And Sun Valley is in central Idaho. And uh, it's about an hour and a half or an hour from Boise up in the mountains. And it's a real resort town. It's a small town. But it's like a it's like a uh, Rocky Mountain ski town. Yeah, and I think Bruce Willis had a place there at the time, and so he would show up at your gig every now and then. <laughs> uh, and this is when he was with Demi Moore, and they owned uh, a place I think in town. Like a, I think a, so, yeah, like a club or a hotel yeah. or something. So we were we had played at a little bar in town a bunch of times. We were going back to do like the concert in the park Sunday at seven o'clock weekly festival thing that happened all summer. So we're leaving out. Uh, in the middle of the night, and just this horrible noise starts coming from a rear tire, and we're like, we don't know what it is. We're going to have to stop here and drive seven hours tomorrow and hope it relates. So anyway, we were idiots. We just decided to drive. So we drive. We make it until we're five in the morning, and we are, we're just crossing the Oregon-Idaho line. We're in the middle of nowhere, and then just the right rear wheel just falls off. We had just gradually eaten through the entire rear axle. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, thankfully, this sweet guy, his name was Mike. I don't remember his last name. But he lived in this tiny town. He owned a garage about 12 miles from where we were. So he went to pick us up. Or he went back. He pulled over on the side of the road to say he could help us. We're like, great, please tow us to your place. <laughs> so he goes back to his shop, comes back with the tow truck, tows us back to his place. And then we're stuck in this tiny little town in Idaho. Um, it's a real fly fishing destination. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Right? So uh, we're hanging out all day. There's one, it's like one restaurant, one gas station, a little, a little park where they have Civil War reenactments and stuff like that. <laughs> and that's it. Um, and so we go there, and uh, it, he's got to, we've got to wait three hours for the part to get in from Bend, Oregon. So, okay, we're waiting all day. Uh, finally, the part gets here, but they're not going to finish the job in time. So he says, well, I'll lend you my pickup truck. Uh, or I'll lend you the tow truck we're not using so you can get to the gig. And then someone has to come back tomorrow 
And I was like, all right, well, we're, we're going from Sun Valley to then to Boise for two days, so I can come back tomorrow and pick up the van and all that. So he lends this totally sweet guy is fixing the van. He lends us his, his uh, tow truck. Which, so then, so then we're, we get back on the road. We're like, we're barely going to make it in time for downbeat. And so we drive about another two hours, and then we have a blowout. His tire goes. <laughs> so we have to put on the spare tire, like the little rubber disc. So we, we get that. And we call the promoter. Thankfully, cell phones existed at this point. Mm-hmm. So we call the promoter. Like we're going to be there at you know a half hour before our start time, but we're going to get there. So we finally get there, and the entire town of Sun Valley, they're all just sitting there in the park, kind of in the picnic tables, and uh, and they just start giving us a, a wild round of applause <laughs> just for showing up. <laughs> so we get there, we play. It's wonderful, and then I have to go back the next day to to get the van. Uh, so I drop everyone else off in Boise. So they're there for the gig that night, and then I have to drive back a couple hours to get the van. And as it turns out, the guy is a bluegrass musician, and he says, I'll tell you what. I know you guys are broke and you're road musicians. We'll do this whole repair for free if you play at our annual bluegrass VFW festival next summer. (laughs) So I'm like, awesome. Deal. We didn't have the $1,000 anyway. <laughs> uh, so we go and do our gig, and then a year later, we had to come back and play this little tiny town in a little tiny park right across the street. Uh, and it was like one of the great uh, Fellini moments. It wasn't dark in a David Lynch way. It was just weird. Like, you know, the old toothless fiddle player. Literally wow. the old funky toothless fiddle player from the hills who is great <laughs> playing. And they're all doing these weird, you know, like... Uh, They'll do like pure Prairie League songs. Sure. And stuff that I didn't really grow up with, but it's like this was, you know, whatever mainstream country, they're doing Merle Haggard tunes and stuff like that. <laughs> it, it ended up being this wonderful, weird experience. We just got thrown, like fate just threw us into the hands of this little tiny town and they were all just wonderful. <laughs> do you, would you say you had one, um, as they say, spinal tap moment where you're in the middle of a gig and going, what am I doing with my life? Oh, yeah. How did it, how did I end up here? Oh, yeah. That, is, that has definitely happened a few times. I try – that happened to me a few times earlier on. Well, actually, when, when I first moved to Seattle and then when I first moved to L.A., uh, you know, at first you're new in town. You need to take any gig you can possibly get. Uh, and then once you start getting better and knowing more people in the area, you can kind of and, – and you start – and for me it was getting a, a sense of my own taste and my own aesthetic and what I liked and what I wanted to do. What I felt was real, what I wanted to be a part of, and then uh, you grad you gradually start getting called for the things that you like doing and the things that you do do, and you get you can you have to take less of those calls that well I I need the seventy five bucks to pay rent I don't have a choice you know uh, so thankfully in, at least in the last bunch of years I've I've been able to stick to my guns a little more <laughs> um, I definitely still do you know sessions and stuff with people I don't know uh, but kind of by reputation. We have mutual friends or something like that. So I'm like, all right, it's at least going to be good or it's going to, like, you know, my uh, – it'll either pay well, there'll be great people, it'll be educational, or it'll be David Lynch. Yeah. <laughs> so I can do that. Um, I've definitely had those gigs where I – like uh, one of my first gigs out of college, I played in a Jimi Hendrix cover band. Wow. And the guitarist and the drummer were great. They were probably in their 30s. And well, then, if the guitarist is no good in the Jimmy Hendrix the cover, then, no, the guitarist, then you're the dead in the water, right? was slamming. Okay. And I had, I had played like Crosstown Traffic and some other stuff like that. So you're that. doing the Noel Redding part. I did the Noel Redding. Did you get the Afro blowout? Uh, uh, no, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't have long hair then. <laughs> I, I would have been much more suited for it visually later mm-hmm. in my career. Um, uh, but 
so I do the gig, and I was really getting into Band of Gypsies, really getting into the, the psychedelic era of Hendrix. And he really did shift in a very short career. Hendrix really was this unbelievable visionary of in, taking American blues and rootsy rock and roll and the psychedelic movement and the Beatles and the songwriting and kind of making it his own. He was a f- total force of nature. My respect for Hendrix was unbelievable um, and still is. And so I'm learning all this stuff note for note and really getting into it. The arrangements are unbelievable. And then after about two weeks of doing this gig, I'm like, you're not Hendrix. You're playing this garbage note for note. You're not the visionary. I don't want to be on this stage. (laughs) We're a cover band. We're playing Purple Haze for drunk people in downtown Seattle. (laughs) You know, and it was like it clicked. I was like, "There's, there's something artistic that this guy's not getting." Um, and yeah, some of the Hendri- some of the solos were really good. The drummer was very musical, and uh, one of the one of the really cool things I learned about Hendrix, in general, was when the dr- and more more band of gypsies and later Hendrix, when the guitar freaks out, the drums freak out, the way that John Coltrane and Elvin Jones had their thing. Uh, when the more John Coltrane would go out there the drummer would just freak out and the, the sheets of sound and chaos that the saxophone created. The drums did too, but the bass has to hold it down and the bass has to play the same riff over and over and over. You're the straight man in this whole thing. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and so I got really into that role for three or four gigs and I was like, okay, you're just masturbating now. <laughs> and I, I, I drove home from the gig. I looked at myself in the morning the next, the next morning when I woke up. I looked myself in the mirror I was like, I can't do this anymore. I got I to gotta take what I learned and move on. This gig will kill me. Isn't that the essential um, nature, though, of a, of a cover band, is that you, you are not doing your own stuff? I mean, right. it, it kind of right. brings people to that. They're just kind of like, oh, we're just doing it for a gig. And Sometimes. Sometimes there's a way to get work. Yeah, I mean, very, very much so, and that's totally a part of it. And sometimes, sometimes there's a true relationship. I mean, some people don't really write songs. And they don't, they don't know what it's like to be creative or write their own bits. And to reenact is a wonderfully deep thing for them. Joe Cocker didn't really write music. Janis Joplin didn't really write music. Elvis mm-hmm. didn't really write music. Frank Sinatra. There's this amazing history. Um, and go, leaving the realm of stand-up comedy, some great people who have incredible comic timing are actors or actresses who can't write what they... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're insanely charming and poignant or funny when they're given the right script. Mm-hmm. They can interpret something and, and really make it their own. Um, and so I have, a, I have a respect for some people who play in cover bands and people who uh, have a, like really just stay very close to a traditional genre. Like a modern blues artist still might be great. It's not like I hate modern blues, you know. Like I, I don't listen to a ton of it. Uh, I'd rather go back and hear Buddy Guy or some of those other guys. Right. Uh, or uh, Blind Willie Johnson. <laughs> but there's some really great stuff happening still. And it's like, if, if I'm going to be playing that music and think, wow, I really need to rewrite this and make it my own, that's my call. If someone else says, yeah, I'm not going to do it better than Johnny Paycheck in 1976. <laughs> yeah. I wanna, I'm going to sing the shit out of this Johnny Paycheck tune tonight and be proud of it. Like this guy Whitey... I was just toying with. He just, he believes it. He's, he is proud to be a modern purveyor of honky-tonk music. Because he, like, that music really is better than a lot of other music in the world. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's, uh, and I've played with other people like that. And it's pretty cool. Um, and when you first brought up the cover band thing, yeah, there are a lot of people who, uh, 
it feels like they've let they've let the soulful side of things slip and they've just been playing cover bands for so long they just don't even know anymore. Or the flip side, they're crazy yeah. obsessive about this one particular artist yeah. that they almost wish they were him or believe that they were him or yeah. them or, you know yeah the guns and roses cover band it's creepy almost in a way yes. <laughs> yeah yeah i've seen i've seen like uh you know a doors cover band and i met the guy who's like his day gig was being jim morrison and it was Ugh. strange really like yeah i love jim morrison too he was a great rock and roll poet <laughs> and uh, lizard king and all that but it's like wow you're you yeah. believe in this a little yeah. too much, man. <laughs> Your girlfriend looks the role too, and so does the da 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 da. Yeah, it's like wow, that's yeah. I can't I can't hang with that. <laughs> you know, as a comic, we always traveled alone, and that's where I yeah. first learned to travel alone. And on certain times, I really envied bands that they'd have someone to hang out with or eat, you have a posse, or eat with, which is really nice. But that can flip on you another way. I mean, I travel alone a lot because uh, a lot of people would just annoy the crap out of me. Yeah. After about a week. And that happens. A lot, of, a lot of the times when you're with a band, you respect each other musically. And you have this common vision in terms of what the show is. But you're in that van. But, <laughs> it's crammed I, but, I, but I say to some people, like when I, when I tour sometimes, or when I really first started touring, I would go back to New York and visit my, my high school and college buddies that I used to be in bands with and stuff. They'd say, what's it like? And I'm like, it's kind of like touring around with a bunch of coworkers rather than... I, I always envision you always see a band like the Stones or uh, U2. You're like, wow, they were like high school buddies. Yeah, I know. And they became this band. Like I used to love Fishbone, which was a great L.A. band. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's like, wow. You're like you and your five high school friends and like someone's younger brother is the guitarist. It's like I can't imagine what it would be like to have my five best friends in the world and we're traveling around making history and – or or just paying our way. Los Lobos right. is a great example of that. And just to keep um, it together. To keep it together. Long. Yeah. It's incredible. Um and I didn't I, I wasn't that lucky in that way. Um I was always in a ton of different bands and my social my social life was always being the satellite guy who would join these other three best friends and become their bass player or their rhythm guitarist yeah. or something. And I became really good at being that kind of chameleon. Even in high school and college, before I, before I realized you could be a professional musician and, and get paid to do this. I was kind of that guy anyway. Um, well, I've got to think that it's got to be easier to get hired by other bands. A, if, well, you have to be good. But B, he's a nice guy that won't drive us nuts. I yeah, mean, you're you, easy you, to get along with. You're like, fine, yes. you want to hear Winger? Put it on the jukebox. I don't <laughs> yes. care. Yes. Fine, blast your iPod, dude. Whatever. Yeah, if you're a you pain know. in the ass to travel with, I yeah. mean... It gets finicky. Yeah, I bet. Uh, and yeah, being, being flexible in that way is definitely a real... Uh, it's a selling point. Thankfully, I'm fairly mellow anyway. Yeah. So it's not that big a deal. Okay, fine, if you want to be... You know, if you're really going to take a stand on this one, it's not that important to me. <laughs> you okay. ever left anybody at the airport uh, or just like, okay, let's ditch that guy? No, I used, to work, with a, I, I used to work with a guy <laughs> who was real high drama. And, uh-huh. and we left a drummer on the highway. <laughs> He literally pulled his drums out of the van and left him on the side of the highway. <laughs> <laughs> Where were you? That was, I think we were on the way to Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Ooh. Actually, which is like you're in the mountains. Yes. Yeah, like so that's, you, that's you, fucking unforgiving. Attacked by a moose yeah, out there. totally. With um, his drum set. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I would have at least got him to the next town, but the guy I was working with was like, no, that bastard, you need to get out of this van right now. I can't stand it. I can't, I, I can't stand the smell of you. You know, uh, 
Oh, the smell. But that's got to be. That the smell van is has got a reek. A lot of, a lot of vans reek. <laughs> They're horrible. Yeah. I was in, I was in, uh, I was in Spain once with a band from LA, actually. And the drummer uh, had a heroin problem. Oh. And was off of it and clean for a good two or three years. Like, he knew the lead singer very well. Uh, and he knew he was clean. And so he came on this tour. And we did. Like our first day, we did a big TV show and then the big gig in Madrid that night. And then we did a festival the next day up near Bilbao. Okay. Uh, and then we get back to Madrid and we're hanging out and then he scores some heroin. Oh. And I, and I had never been around any, well, actually still, thankfully, I, I'd never been around anyone who was on heroin, never been in a band with anyone. That was, so that was never like an ongoing issue. Um, and so I didn't really know what to expect. And then this, guy, this, this, this drummer was just kind of like half conscious in the hotel room in Madrid for the next three days, lying in the bed, rolling around like, eh. oh, and anyway, so he, anyway, he goes, with, you know, got fired. Yeah. Uh, and then we kind of had to do the tour acoustic, you know, <laughs> oh, no. bass and electric guitar and acoustic guitar for the, for the next bunch of dates. Um, and that was, a, that was a weird one because I didn't, I didn't know you could leave behind your friend in a way. Um, that was when I had just moved to L.A., and I still had a little bit of the Pacific Northwest. Not that you need to become a hardened criminal to survive in the entertainment industry yeah. in L.A., but that was the first time that had happened, uh, and that was, that was pretty shocking to me. And, also, I mean, the, 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 you know, a lot of people, you know, the line, you know, the gateway drug theories, the line between pot and other things is a big one. The line, be- it seems the line between almost everything else and heroin is a big yeah, one. You know? <laughs> They're going to jump up to heroin. That's a serious... Well, uh, it all kind of starts with drinking. That's, a, that's the biggest yeah, yeah. Gateway, gateway drug but of it's, them all. Know, but I mean, you must have been, you must have had some heavy drinkers, I'm assuming, along uh, the way. Oh, yeah. Definitely had some heavy yeah. drinkers, some guys that peed themselves on stage. Oh, my some God. Guys, it was like really embarrassing. Like, guys, really, we're adults. <laughs> this is kind of fun to read about it happening to Jefferson Airplane back in the day, <laughs> yeah. But do you re- or Guns N' Roses? But do you really want this to be your life? Like, come on, man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, whatever. Thank. Th- I've uh, uh, along with being the bass player and the songwriter guy that I've been is a little bit of the band therapist. Mm-hmm. So, like, I I I've played with this one guy. It was really sweet, but it just like a little kid, and he'd be like, "Why does this always happen to me?" I'm like. It doesn't happen out of the blue to you. You're the one who drank that much and then acted that way, and now you're, you, you've got the, the remorse the morning after. Like, control it, man. It's not that hard. You know, yeah. Do you find yourself setting into a pattern of you have a, an album coming out a certain number of times, like uh, one a year or once every couple of years, and then you tour to support it? And yeah. Is that the set pattern? <clears throat> I try to do a record every year and a half. Actually, my new record is coming out hopefully in the next couple months. Oh, and that uh, would be called Night Owl. Night Owl available on uh, just tedrusselcamp.com. Oh, okay. And, we were going to get to the plugs. Uh, we can get to the plugs. Tedrusselcamp.com. That's camp with yeah. a K, by the camp way, everybody. K. Nice. Uh, so on my website, it'll be on iTunes and mm-hmm. uh, Amazon and CD Baby and Reverb Nation and I Tweet and all that stuff. Well, I got to know. Uh, uh, I mean, we've seen how the internet has basically changed everything. Yeah. And uh, probably no more so than music. I mean, is it come to the same thing? It's like album sales are mean. Album sales mean much less. 
And I, my life was really drastically affected uh, by Spotify and Rhapsody. Okay. Because like, I'm an independent artist. My last couple records were, on, were in collusion with Dual Tone Records, which is a, a cool, respected uh, Roots Music label out of Nashville. There's an arty indie rock side to it, but they also have some more classic uh, Americana and country kind of acts. Uh, so it was a really great fit for me. But uh, like I did my first record with them and sold well, and then my uh, 5,000 records in a year or two year and a half and then the next one I did sold half that and I'm like but I'm doing as well the economy was already kind of tanking the first time around yeah. so I wasn't I wasn't that concerned uh, and and then I had all these people at my shows saying man I listen to you on Spotify all the time I love your music and, and I was like well then nothing. cool buy one for ten dollars <laughs> da 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 or fifteen dollars mm-hmm. hey and they're like oh no I already listen to it all the time and it's like we're we're in a we're in an era now where people just don't think they have to pay for music. And we're like, what I think, it, uh, I think it was Spotify. I might get the fact wrong, but Lady Gaga was the first one to get a million plays mm-hmm. on Spotify. It might be Rhapsody, but it's one of the two. And then, and then they sent her a check for $300 <laughs> for a million plays. Now, that's a million people that could have downloaded your song for 99 cents. Wow. Or something. You know what I mean? Or, or people can just see it for free on YouTube. Yeah, um, I'm I'm at a, I'm at a point now where I want to be a part of those because people will randomly and accidentally find me in my music and hopefully like it. You yeah, it's a I mean? double-edged sword. I mean, yeah. on the flip side, people from Sweden can find you and they can go to your website and they can yeah. The odds of hear you and, by accident. Yeah, when they plug in Ray LaMontagne, <laughs> yeah. the ninth song might be mine. Right, right. You know what I mean? Uh, or they even you can plug in Dwight Yoakam and you might even get one of my other more country kind of mm-hmm. tunes. Uh, uh, but it, that's just kind of what it is. That's that's life. It's like I, I, to an extent, you can stop and complain about it. I just kind of have to. You, I just have to accept it. And does that you mean know? more touring though? Because that's where uh, it sometimes has to... that means more touring. Some, there's also sometimes the film and licensing. You said you've had, uh, in, in like aside from stand up comedy, you've had some good gigs on TV yeah. and other things. And you just have to be okay. Well, let's let's. Not necessarily rewrite the rule book, but we've got a bigger and broader rule book than we thought we had. You know, whereas when I was 23, the concept of selling out was was a big one. Like I remember when when the when I was in high school, the Peter Gabriel record So yeah, which was like the big synth pop album by Peter Gabriel, and everyone loved his artier stuff before then. And then I had one. At the time, I would not have labeled him this, but now looking back, he was my conspiracy theory friend from high school, yeah, yeah. you know, who was <laughs> right. reading Ayn Rand and George Orwell all the time. And he was like, man, SO stands for sellout. Stands for sold out. Because he knows he's sold out, man. Sledgehammer, <laughs> that's not Peter Gabriel. I want to hear prog rock Genesis, man. Yeah. And it was like, and, and now that I've been, and now that you've been in the entertainment industry for a while, it's like, okay, you have to make your choices. Some gigs will ask me to be a little cheesier than I want to be. Some gigs... I can stomach it. Some gigs I really kind of enjoy. Like I've, there's a woman named Candy Kane, yeah. who was a kind of rock and billy jump blues woman. And when she first started out in the in the music world, she was a a porn star, who was a. Uh, like, oh, with a, that name, you'd never a, would a, think. A, but... a, like what's the what's the term for like two she you know two hundred pounds like she was on the cover of Jugs magazine. Oh, well, she, she was a big she was woman, a big, big lady, a big okay. lady. Uh, and so she used to finance her gigs. Like she'd hire the band for fifty or seventy-five dollars a man, and mm-hmm. with the money she made from her 
day gig. She, and she'd pay for her first record, and she's a hard worker, and now she's doing all music and has been for years. So I toured with her. And, <laughs> but a lot of her tunes are kind of this Big Mama Thornton classic 200 Pounds of Fun. Yeah, you got to yeah, know yeah. how much woman I am. Like a lot of her songs are – there's a really great, powerful, feminist women empowerment yeah. thing. And she's like, I'm, I'm not, big, I'm proud. I'm and- not hot, young, and sexy, but you, but embrace whoever you are, and this is who you are, and you can make it work and be successful and be proud. You know what I mean? Like, there's something wonderful about her, but there's also this very kind of gimmicky shtick thing that happens sometimes. Mm-hmm. So it's like, the, I, you know, I like we we kind of met through other friends. I do the gig for all. I'm like, all right. It, uh, now I would never choose to do this kind of stuff. But it's her, and she's doing it, and she believes it, and she thinks it's funny and charming, and she's got a great, a great dark sense of humor about it. I'm like, yeah, I can stand behind this. This isn't cornball. You know what I mean? Uh, in, in the hands of someone else, it might be horribly cornball, and I'd be like, wow, okay, get me off stage. I'm embarrassed. But the way Candy did it, I didn't, I didn't feel that way at all. It was kind of cool, and it was her being loud and proud. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. Um, so, yeah, the concept of selling out changes and the concept, like, it's a really cool thing. Sometimes I'm on a session and I, I don't really relate to the music all that much. But I'm like, wow, these people have hired me to help their music be better. They're trusting my judgment yeah. and instinct. And it's like, I can get uptight or I, you know, I, could, I could quit if it's really horrible. That's always up to me. You know, but there's always those guys like your friend that are, you know, oh, man, it's not like it used to be. Yeah. But now they sure. just have a sure. they have a. A way to say that now on the internet that yeah. they just blast it out to a million people on a blog or whatever it right. is, or they comment on your right. your iTunes page or whatever it is, and it just gives them a voice now. But you can't listen to those guys. I mean, there's they're they're right. everywhere, right? Any, they're like everywhere. anyone can do a little video of anything, yeah. But that still doesn't separate the really high quality from all the amateurs. You who just have, to weed through all who the have crap. equipment. There yeah, used which, to be A and R guys that used to weed through all that. You know, you would right. hope. But right. uh, they were the right. filter, and now there's no filter. You right. have to be your own, kind of. So it's hard, it's hard to get out there, definitely. But if you're consistent, you do good work, you believe in it, you know, it's like, yeah. I, then keep going. There's an audience. How, you know? is there a limit, have you ever put it on yourself that said, okay, I'm going to do this for a certain time, or I'm going to limit it to 40 weeks a year, or 20 weeks a year on the road? Or um, For the last, let's see, I was, I was playing with this guy, Shooter Jennings, for a good five, six years on the road. And we were doing less and less touring mm-hmm. each year. We kind of came out of the gate really strong. And then, uh, so I would do touring in between our tours. Like we'd take the winter off and then I'd do, okay, two weeks in Texas, two weeks in Europe, uh, take two weeks off, two weeks in the Southeast, work my way from Nashville to Chicago or something. And then, and then we'd start touring again with Shooter the next, you know, the next month. Um, and so about two, almost exactly two years ago, I stopped working with Shooter and I was like, okay, I'm going to do, uh, I'm going to try two weeks on the month and two weeks on, two weeks on the road every month. Mm -hmm. And that was a pretty good amount to be home and have a life and gig locally and have a family. Um, you have kids? Uh, one, a four year old son. Oh my gosh. So you have a wife and a kid. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and so it's hard, it's hard on them being gone. You know, my wife, she feels like a single mom for two weeks a month. Um, and so it's like you kind of – thankfully, I've been kind of making my own schedule. And, of course, I make more money on the road a lot of the time than mm-hmm. I do at home. Yeah. So, okay, you got to be at home for at least a certain amount of time every month. But 
and, I, and I'm glad I'm now entering a phase where I'm going to be home for most of the fall, uh, which, which feels good. You know, it's, it's, it'll be nice to regroup and hang out and go to the park a lot and <laughs> all that, you know, do the, do the, you know, redo the kitchen Stuff like that, all the all the home projects yeah. that have been on the back burner for a long time. So you're not one of these guys who, when they they take a break, they don't go on vacation. You go home. I go home. <laughs> that yeah. is, you know, that's getting my, off. That's my yeah. break. That's my Sleeping vacation. in your own bed is the vacation. Yeah, yeah. That's actually a funny thing uh, with my wife. Every time I get home, she's like, "Great, let's go somewhere. Let's go to San Diego for the weekend. Let's do da 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 da. Let's go. Let's uh, we, uh, you know, uh, she's got family up in Marin County. Let's go. Let's go. I'm like. I just I just saw so many hotels. Can I just be at home for a few yeah. days? She's like, let's go out. Let's go out do something fun. I'm like, can we just hang out at home and like can make we have spaghetti a and watch dinner? You <laughs> yeah. know, or, or watch a, yeah, watch a movie. <laughs> but okay, so when let's see, I think we covered anything you wanted to uh, promote or anything you wanted to talk about. You had the new album coming out. Uh, the new record's coming out in about a month. TedRussellCamp.com. Yeah. I already have, uh, I think, like five records out already. That's one, of the, that's one of the things I have a huge respect. And actually, literally, this last week, I had a conversation with one of the other guys in the band about our respect for stand-up comedians. Because when you're doing stand-up, it's just you and your ideas and your ability to communicate with them. Granted, that's kind of what you have with music. But yeah. if, if, if something conversationally is not flowing, I can rely on the script and even if the script itself is not that great, I can concentrate on the beauty of trying to make my voice beautiful or the chord progression, create a mood or the rhythm. If mm-hmm. you're playing with a bunch of guys, you can uh, – one, uh, one of the things I think the music is supposed to be is a red carpet for whatever lyrically is being said. You know what I mean? Uh, and it's like when the words are not there, the music can be there. When I'm in – uh, Spain, and they don't understand the subtlety of some poetic thing, I can do something groovy. I can play a cool bass riff or a guitar riff and <laughs> let that be powerful. I can talk about something simple and, or one-dimensional. Whereas in comedy, you're, you really are... It's like, wow, there's silence. Once you, once you respect the silence... And oh, it's st- silent. You still have to come up with another <laughs> thing to say the next sentence. You know what I mean? And uh, are, are there... How much of a show or how much of a section of a show will be scripted and you're doing a script? Like, you really do change it and improvise it every night? Well, yeah, you can, you can get a reading from the crowd. Um, like some you guys know what work differently. Work I mean, you kind of know what bits. Right. You have your, your bag of bits, basically, uh-huh. and depending on the time and how much you want to fill. Right. But there's certain jokes that you can put out there, and then you can judge a reaction on it. And like, oh, they're going for this more racier stuff or they're kind right. of digging the relationship stuff rather than less of this or you, th- you float a political thing out there just a little taste <laughs> and if they recoil at it you go oh okay maybe they, they're not, not into that there. yeah and can you do like call the thermometer jokes you can kind of like see oh the thermo- that's a good that's gauge a good the temperature of what you're doing and you can go left and right and some guys like to just freeform on stage i mean you got to be pretty Pretty good to do they that. They really can riff. Like, they can do. Uh, some guys are not good at riffing. And but. I'd imagine, can you do like, you can do, you have a subject with a bunch of jokes and things that you've worked out in story, maybe, but you can make it a 30 second or you can make it a five minute thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. And yeah. then you improvise and it evolves from night to night. Yeah, you can. I mean, you can, and you, you can try stuff all the time. I mean, you can add right. tags to a certain thing or like. Right you'll realize after doing it a while, wait, if I call back to that, that'll get me another laugh at the end of it. And yeah. So it's always evolving. You would hope to evolve. The more you do it, again, it's just like the more you do it. 
Yeah. It's just, you get rusty without doing it that much. There are a handful of musicians I've seen that remind me of stand-up comedians. Have you ever gotten to Junior Brown? No. He's, no. he's great. Yeah, maybe he's in his 50s, I'm not sure. But he's a, he, in, he has this special lap steel and guitar built onto one body. So he puts it kind of on a stand in front. He's got a bass player and a drummer. <laughs> and his wife sings harmony and plays acoustic guitar. Uh, and a lot of his music is very kind of gimmicky country. Okay. Like he did it. He, and, uh, so I've seen him three or four times. I've never bought any of his records. Uh, but it's very charming. And there's a, there's a history of if you're a badass musician, if you have a kind of a sticky sense of humor going with it. Actually, Jerry Reed is a great example. Mm-hmm. Um, like he could have just been a, a badass picker. But by combining it with this jokey sense of humor energy, it becomes very approachable and easy to deal with. You don't feel like you're watching Segovia. Yeah. You feel like you're just <laughs> watching the guy next door who, 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 who can blow your mind with his guitar solos every once in a while. And Junior Brown is kind of like that. Um, but the way he plays, like he, it, I'm, I'm sure he tells the bands to play extremely simply. And then he'll do... 15 seconds of guitar playing that sounds like surf guitar. And then right. all of a sudden he'll switch to the other instrument and sound like a honky-tonk pedal steel player from the 40s, doing like a Western swing lick. And then he'll go back to the guitar and sound like, like Jerry Reed. And then he'll go back to the steel and sound like, like Lowell George or some slide guitar mm-hmm. thing. Like his, uh, he is so flexible at all these genres that he can just kind of like whip in one, went out, when he gets bored with that, change the subject. <laughs> and it's like, wow, watching this guy solo is like watching a, stand, a, a good stand-up comedian who can who just like, oh, and another thing I was thinking about. Oh, and da 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 And that reminds me of this. And they just keep going with it. Like I saw Arlo Guthrie okay. uh, years ago. Uh, and he wouldn't even finish a song. He would sit there, like, you know, Alice's Restaurant yeah. like a 13-minute epic storytelling single of, that he had years ago. And he'd like... He'd tell a story. Oh, let me tell you this time I was getting busted for pot in Waco. (laughs) And that reminds me of this tune. He'd play about a minute and a half of a song. Wouldn't even play the whole song. Get to the bridge, be like, so anyway, I was thinking of this. And and then he would just tell another story for five minutes long. And then, oh, that reminds me of this other song. And then he would like, he wouldn't even finish a song. But in a way that some of the great singer-songwriters do, their job really is kind of like, the more you get to know them, and like them and understand them as this quirky character and lovable character or lover of life that they are and like sharer of stories and wisdom. Mm-hmm. That's more important than any particular song they have. You know, if you're, if you're James Taylor or someone like that, you're lucky in a way because you have these the, – uh, I Billy hear he's Joel, very funny. These I'd cultural say. touchstones. That's yeah. like, okay, people are waiting to hear that song so they can feel a certain way. But Arlo Guthrie was like, oh, I'll play 30 seconds of Alice's Restaurant, <laughs> yeah. whatever. But the show is me telling stories. Right, right, right. Me and myself in this kind of non sequitur, hanging out in your living room kind of a way. <laughs> and it was this wonderful uh, just gift. You're kind of invited into this world. Uh, and, and great comedians can do that. You know, when they don't, they don't just give you punchlines, like you, it, there's a humanness. <laughs> To it, well, when know? I've gotten hecklers, I always wish I had a guitar and could have over- overpowered them with something. <laughs> yeah. I envy uh, musicians in yeah. that. Have you had anything thrown at you, spit on, booed off stage? Anything I had, like I had that? a weird one. <sighs> Man, I don't remember the name of the city. I remember the way it felt to stand on stage. And I remember the, the feel of the street. 
outside. So it might have been Kansas. It might have been Iowa. Uh, it was very, it was very dry and warm, <laughs> and uh, it was kind of a spread out city with not a lot going on. Uh, but it was definitely in the Midwest. And we do a gig. It's a nice theater. It's like a troubadour or the El Rey theater type of a place. Right. And uh, and this guy in the second or third row is loving the show and just getting into it and drinking. He's hanging out with his girlfriend. <laughs> da, 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 da. So like we're it's like this wonderful energy. And then he takes a handful of pocket change and throws it at me. <laughs> and I'm, and it's like one of the string one one of the coins hit. Like my one of my strings is a blank. One of them hit my neck. <laughs> oh Thankfully, my a lot of them just flew right by me. And I'm like, "What the? What the? What is this guy <laughs> thinking? Like, come on!" And then at the end of the show, he came out to kind of like where the tour bus was to try to say hello to the band. And I was like, "Man, what was that? Like, you can't throw. Like, we're not street performers yeah. where you'd throw money into the guitar case <laughs> yeah. because you like it." He was like, "Man, I was just digging it. It was great." I was like. Then what possessed you to throw change at me? <laughs> like one could have hit me in the eye. One could have, right. I could have swallowed one. Like something could have been broken. You were 30 feet from me. You threw these projectiles at me. And he was just, it was just this drunken enthusiasm. Yeah. I was like, okay, for future reference, don't throw things like that yeah. at the performance. Unless you throw large bills, like a 20. <laughs> Unless it's We large, accept yeah. that to be thrown at us. Yeah, that's, totally. that's fine. If you want to make a little paper? If you want to make it rain in here. Out of a $100 <laughs> bill, that's okay. <laughs> Uh, now, thankfully, I haven't had a lot of, you know, I've never had the, the tomato. Okay. I've any, never, cultur- I've, any cultural things of like going on in, uh, you're in Norway and you go, hello, Sweden. And you're, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> I mean, like, boo. Oh, sorry. I did have one where I was uh, in, flew into Germany and it was like a long flight from L.A. to Germany. You know, it's like yeah. you fly to New York and then you fly to London and then it's like, so it's like a 16 hour oh, absolutely. on a plane. And I get there, it's like two or three in the afternoon. I go right from there to the gig, oh. and I get there, and some guy was like, "Let me buy you a beer," and I'm like, "Oh no, can I have a water?" I just, I, you know, I, you know, I gotta regroup a little bit. And he's like, "I, I didn't just turn this guy down. I offended him and his culture." <laughs> and he said something like, "Beer is for people. Water is for horses." <laughs> so it's something like that, and then this is kind of broken German. It's like. Wow, I'm really sorry, man. Okay, fine, buy me a beer. Ah, <laughs> oh, the Germans. Ah, oh, the Germans. Um, water is for horses. Water is for horses. Beer is for people. I was like, oh man, I just, I just, I just insulted this guy without trying to. What was the joke? What did W. C. Fields say? Don't drink water because fish fucking fish it. Fish fucking it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good one. And uh, W. C. Fields had a uh, no Marx Brothers. Mm-hmm. Groucho Marx. Uh, it might have been in Duck Soup, but they're at a big dinner party, kind of high society thing, and this woman's sort of like, I believe you're drunk. And he says, well, you're ugly, and I'll be sober in the morning. <laughs> oh, God. I can't keep up with you, but I'll try. Okay. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> I didn't even ask you any groupie stories, so you can thank me for that later. Thankfully, not really for me. No, no. No. I've been around him. I was I was in a band, a touring band for a while, and our drummer was a madman. Oh yeah. So I got to be the I was I got pretty good at being the wingman. Our drummer's always the weirdest <clears> ones. <throat> they gotta be. Uh, Ozzy Osbourne used to say that. It's like, what, look at them. They they beat things with sticks all day. They hit things for a living. That's <laughs> something I say. Uh, yeah, drummers. Are, there's a there's a very primal and soulful thing about good drummers. You know? Right. Very very rarely do you find a drummer who really is 
kind of intellectual who's artistic. You know, like I knew one, there's one great drummer from Long Beach I used to play with, Steve Hodges, who played with Tom Waits yeah. for a while. And so he really approaches the drums truly artistically. You know, he's picking up these weird percussion instruments yeah. and sitting them down on the other drums and getting these tones. And he I was really... thinking of like Neil Peart of Rush. You know, he's the guy who yeah. writes all the crazy lyrics. And, and, the... and he's a real intellectual. Yeah. And you can hear that in his drumming. <laughs> uh, there's a, the, the, the great, the, a lot of the greatest drummers are the ones who really are smart and also really primal and soulful. Yeah. I, I, I worked with a guy who was actually a, great, a really great drummer and it really immature. And I, I developed this theory with another friend of mine that was like the, the year you get insanely passionate about music and start playing eight hours a day is the year you stop growing up. That's, <laughs> that's, how, that's your emotional maturity for the rest of your life. So I was like, okay, this guy's 13. Do you think of him as a 13-year-old in an adult that's interesting. body yeah. with, a, with a driver's license and the ability to drink legally? Then we just have to – like that's where his – once he got Emotional the bug, complexity. Yeah. He all his social skills with, went out the... Stopped dealing with people. Didn't have to learn how to deal with people any better because his... And he was wonderfully talented. Right. So just, okay, and that's who he is. Anyway, so this, this drummer uh, was in a long-term relationship and then got out of it and was just kind of sleeping. Like, and this is also just as Facebook was beginning. Okay. So he was like, he would set up a chick before the gig and an after gig. No, this MySpace was happening. Oh, MySpace, so sure. So he would set up a chick for before and after. And I just, me and one of the other guys in the van, we'd kind of change roles being the wingman. <laughs> and there were more than a few times when I ended up hanging out with the, the hot 40-year-old mom. Oh, boy. While he's making out with the hot 22-year-old daughter. <laughs> and that was, that was something that was very awkward for the first few times. So I just kind of accepted, okay, this, this is what it is. <laughs> well, well, you know. At least we're roughly from the same era of life. Let's talk about right, right, right. The Breakfast Club, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh God! Well, this has been fun, man. I appreciate it. We got to get you out of here and uh, beating rush hour. You got right. a little ways to go. Well, thank you again for having me over. I had a great time. Oh man, thanks had for a doing great it. Time. It was great to meet you, and hopefully we can hang soon. Well, I got to go out and see you play locally. I'd love it. I'd love it. All right. When's the next gig in town? That I when is out? my next gig in town? Um, I know October ten. I'll be playing the standard. Oh, okay. The they hotel. have a, they have a, the standard and, and uh, yeah, Sunset Ship. They have a great singer songwriter night that's every Wednesday. Cool. So that's ten ten. Uh, what else do I have? I have a few random gigs. I'm in I'm in the house band sometimes. With uh, there's a great band called the Twenty Nine Mules, and we play at Ireland's Thirty Two, great okay. little Irish bar in Van Nuys. Oh, all right. Um, and so they play every Monday. And I play most Mondays. Whenever whenever I'm home, I'll I'll rejoin the house band. Uh, but it's a great it's a great hang and really mellow, and it doesn't have any of the L.A. pretension. Um, it's a real relaxed neighborhood bar. Uh, but then also, I mean, like these like world class musicians and actors and production people, like everyone kind of so many people live in the neighborhood. You kind of I've had I've often when you say jam session. You get some horrible blues guitarist show up who can't play. He plays for 19 minutes and makes everyone miserable. <laughs> this, however, happens very occasionally there. Often it's like, wow, these world-class people who have just gotten off the road with these other world-class people, and they show up on a Monday night so they can do a couple Bob Dylan covers. Yeah, that's the beauty it's of being really, in L.A. You can see people, because yeah. they live here, yeah. that you would have to pay big money to see on the road, that they'll just pop in yeah. and just stop it's in. Pretty, just, it's pretty great. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, Monday nights at Ireland 32 in the Valley. Awesome. It's, a, it's cool, and I will be there, actually not this next Monday, because I'll be out of town, but then all of August I'll be there on Mondays, and I'll usually do a couple tunes and sit in with people. It's a good it's Cool. Good Ted Russell Camp, that's Camp with a K, 
tedrusselcamp.com, right? Yeah. All right. Thanks, Ted. Thank you. My pleasure. I appreciate it.